Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and with me today is a special guest, Sean Rittenauer. Sean is professor of economics at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. He's also the author of the book Foundations of Economics, A Christian View, and has contributed to three other books. Sean has written scores of articles and editorials on topics including cultural economics, macroeconomic theory, policy, pedagogy, and the intersection of economics and theology and ethics. Sean, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. So uh, were you always a libertarian? Did you... Did you become a libertarian at the ripe old age of zero, or how, how did you uh, get into economics and libertarianism? I'm just inviting you to kind of share your testimony with us. Sure. Uh, that's a good good question. Um, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't say from year zero. Um, I will say that a lot of it, I, I sort of instinctually embraced liberty and and freedom from a fairly young age, um, I was sort of a young a patriot, if you will. I was really interested. I, I sort of came of age in the the era of the bicentennial. So um, I was ten years old when, well, nine years old uh, in in seventy six, nineteen seventy six. So there's a lot of talk about the founding fathers and the Declaration of Independence and all that. And so I was really enthusiastic about that, and and sort of and believed quite a bit of the um, sort of the what should one say the, the natural the national mythology, and uh, you know not all of it was mythology. And so I all had sort of an intuitive uh, intuitive embracing of of independence and liberty, and then uh, I think also. Just living in my household, my my mom in particular, who sort of managed the, the the family budget, she was just very frugal and was good at practically economizing on a daily basis. And so we were just sort of, I don't know, in our household taught not to waste and always thinking just sort of practically without a lot of formal with zero formal instruction thinking about you know marginalization and, and thinking in terms of marginal cost marginal benefit so uh, but but not I had no I, I had no no knowledge that there was a discipline really called economics at the time I went I went to government school all the way through high school and so when I got to college, there was this class called, well, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had no idea what I wanted to do for a career. Um, I, I thought, well, maybe I'd like working for myself. I didn't, I didn't really want to be what I th would think of as a cog in a corporate machine someplace. So I thought, well, 
Um, I, I liked I liked English. I had a, a really good literature class when I was in high school, but I thought, what am I going to do with that? Uh, my advisor said, well, Tay, why don't you take, if you're going to work for yourself, it may be major in business, you're probably going to have to take, um, you have to take some uh, econ classes. I'll put you in principles of microeconomics. So I took that class and I was really excited about it. I thought that the, the questions that were asked in economics were uh, were, were vital questions. I liked the way we attempted to solve these questions. I liked the, the intersection between uh, logical analysis and, and, and the real world of scarcity. I really liked that type of problem solving. Um, so I was heavily drawn to it. I was, at the same time, I, I, I grew up in um, I grew up in a Christian family, so and uh, embraced Christ when I was young, and so I it, it was of concern to me, you know, when I wanted to pursue a career, I wanted to you know wanted to pursue something that I thought was valid, that was was legitimate, and so uh, irrespective of my enthusiasm for the econ class. I wanted to make sure that the economics was something worth spending your life on. Um, I didn't want it to, um, you know, spend my whole life doing, you know, ivory tower sophistry and, you know, just interesting puzzle solving, but not have it be really a, a, something that you could call a calling. Well, it would be my probably maybe sometime during my sophomore year. I bought a copy of uh, Mises's Human Action and started reading that. And the way Mises uh, just develops economics from real human action uh, really, to me, uh, changed. I don't want to say changed everything, but 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 made it in some sense made me want to be an economist. It, it was the book that showed me yes. Uh, there is a way to do economics that is thoroughly, uh, thoroughly compatible with the Christian view of man as a rational being made in God's image. Of course, Mises didn't put it that way, but his description of action as a starting point, I thought, is uh, completely compatible with the Christian view of action. And so um, that's what really – you know, Mises, and I think in his memoirs said that his reading uh, Menger's Carl Menger's Principles of Economics is what made him an economist. Well, me, me reading Mises' Human Actions what made me an economist. And so, as I read more and more in Mises and and you know, and others, um, I read. Uh, you know, I did my time with with Milton Friedman too, as well, and um, became to appreciate sort of classical the classical liberal perspective, and. Um, so I would say by the time I graduated college, if I had to identify myself, I'd say well, I, was, I was a classical liberal, uh, sort of um, along um, Assessian lines. Uh, since then, I have, um, you know, I've, I've read the works of uh, Rothbard and Hoppe, and uh, do um, think have come to the come to the point where I think that the economic argument about public goods, uh, the public goods theory, therefore requiring the government to provide uh, defense and, and whatnot. I don't think that – I don't think there's a good economic argument that that necessarily has to be the case. In other words, I think that, that what, what Rothbard calls an anarcho-capitalist society could function. Um, I'm never – I'm not overly 
optimistic about if we ever get to that society, a society like that surviving very long, because I think that there are always, you know, sin problems. And I think that there are whenever it's kind of like kind of like banking in some sense, whenever you give people who are you know specialists in a particular area, said in this case, say national defense. These people, if they specialize, they're going to be better than anybody else using firearms. They're going to probably accumulate more and better weaponry. And at some point, some of those people are going to be tempted to say, hey, you know what? We can we can run the whole whole show and become sort of a, 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 a tribal warlord, so to speak. And that, to me, is like the first step towards towards the state. So. I'm not. I would, you know, even if we got to an anarcho-capitalist society, I don't. I'm not optimistic that we'd ever have one for a really long time. But I don't. But I don't think there's a good economic argument that says well, it can't work. Uh, so that's sort of that's sort of where I am. Um, I tend not to be overly. Oddly enough, I'm really interested in economics. I'm not overly interested in in political philosophy. So I I, I don't spend a lot of time. Trying to decide, you know, on any given day, am I am I a pure libertarian? Am I, a, you know, a monarchist or what am I? But um, wherever we are now, the freer the society we can get, the better. Yeah, we're a long way from <laughs> from anarchism anyway, at least in the United States. And right. uh, if we can even get nudged in that direction, I mean, it's way more statism than you and I would feel comfortable with. Yes. But it's a it's a good good direction. Do you do you have trouble? Um, I know you're you're at a Christian college, so obviously, yes. and, and people are taking your classes. I don't know if you teach only electives or if some of them are required or what. But do you have What's your experience with other Christians and kind of, I wouldn't say convincing them, but like getting them to see the benefit of understanding at least some Econ 101? Yeah, I think that, I think the students come in with, in general, I think a, a, a desire to to want to understand how the world works. And and I think that they understand that, um, you know, even even if they don't necessarily, they're, they're skeptical of, of, economists in general, I think that they do want to understand the economic aspect of life and how that works. And so I think the students the students have some hunger for knowledge. And, and, and I found the best way to sort of satisfy that hunger is to show them step by step the economic principles as we derive from realistic human action, in other words, you start at the start. The, that's one thing I, I really love about Mises. You don't start off with, well, assume that this is the case, and assume that that is the case, and assume that this is the case, and then if we have all these assumptions, we can tease out these implications mm-hmm. of our functions or whatever. We don't have to. We don't rightly still say, well, wait a minute. What about what about if these assumptions aren't true? So no, we we right. you start with say, say, well, we got a problem. So <laughs> you start start with realistic human action and say, yeah. well, hey. They they know by looking at and, and just thinking about their own lives that well yes they do act purposely they do uh, apply means to achieve ends and then we can say okay what is what is, what does this actually imply what 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 is involved in the choice of trying to achieve one end and not the other mm-hmm. and and then things start to fall out so that I, I'm I'm a firm believer I'm I'm a firm believer because I kind of felt it in my own life when I was a student. That the student wants to know to a certain extent why 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 do we think these things why do we think the law of supply and the law of demand are true you know why why 
is it that when we increase the money supply that the purchasing power uh, of money will be lower than it would be otherwise? I mean, why is that the case? And when you can link it back to, well, this is the way – it's because of the way people act. And then you can go further at a Christian school because then I can say, okay, Christians act this way. In other words, they act purposely because that's the way we're made. I mean, that's part of being made in God's image. And then when you see that, then it's it, it, it all hang it all hangs together, and so it's 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 a whole lot easier. Now I do find it's interestingly I think I think professors, some professors are more skeptical than others about economics as a discipline, and I think a large part's because that they've had you know the, the economics they've become acquainted with. Uh, is is not very satisfactory, or they don't like some of the, uh, shall we, free market or libertarian uh, implications uh, of, uh, uh, of of the policy prescriptions that you find in 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 Austrian economics. Yeah, it seems to me that a lot of people dislike an economist's view because that it seems easy to be rife with bias uh, or political ideology. When in fact it doesn't have to be. That's right, and it is interesting too. Even some students, you have to sort of uh, slow down in that regard. In other words, some students think they're interested in economics when they're really interested in 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 like free market policy advocacy. Yeah, and and so you know we have to say, okay, your conclusion. You know, I agree with you on your conclusion, but you have to show me why the conclusion is valid, and that's where the economic analysis has to come in. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I had a, a friend of mine who was kind of a mentor for a little while in, in some biblical studies, and he is he wouldn't call himself on the left because I know that he uh, chastises them for a lot of things that you and I would as well. But he's also definitely not on the right. He's definitely yeah. more progressive in his theology and everything. And, and we were talking about something along the lines of social justice. And I said something about economics. He goes, oh, I don't want to learn. E-. You know, I don't. That's not important. I said, well, if you care about at all about social justice, then you should learn a little bit of economics because Absolutely. every pr- every pronouncement that you make has to do with the you know it it immediately. Or maybe not immediately, but it soon runs into the problem of scarcity and conflicting norms, <laughs> conflicting expectations, and you know, <laughs> intentions don't get the job done. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, and so, yeah. And you, you, the the worst possible thing is to think you're doing good and actually be working against your very wishes because of economic law. Yeah, I in fact yesterday I was talking with somebody on Facebook. We were we were kind of squabbling over the definition of violence and of course i take the the definition of physical threat of force or force uh that's physical and this person was saying well yeah i agree that the state does that but it's not the only institution that does that there's all these others and and one of the things he used as an example was employers who don't pay a living wage are doing a and he didn't say different kind of violence, but they're also doing violence to the people that they are not treating well. Uh, and he, of course, used sweatshops in that example. And I thought, okay, fine, you could you could make the argument that there's harm being done, but it's not violence. And then I, you know, the more you, this is why Facebook isn't a good place to argue because you want to respond right away. But like yeah. a day later th- today, I'm thinking, you know. Having a living wage or imposing legally a, a living wage is also, in his by his standard of violence, doing violence to the people who don't have the output that would match to the living wage. So, like, okay. it works. <laughs> it works both ways. And you know, I don't think if it weren't for places like the Mises Institute and Fee, I wouldn't have understood how to conceptualize 
these these sort of um, the unseen, as Bost- as uh, Bastia puts it, uh, the unseen consequences of like quote unquote good policy or good intentions or even you know even things that immediately have good outcomes for a lot of people might you know be detrimental in the long run. Oh, absolutely, and I mean, you know, it, it, it may be, it may work out fine for for people, in, a few people in the long run, but or even you know, in, in the immediate run, that are going to get the, the the higher wage rate. But um, you, you, whenever, yeah, whenever the state does that, they they inevitably draw a wedge between people because they benefit some at the, at the actual expense of others. I mean, the, the 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 people that lose their jobs or don't get hired at all. Because you know, uh, they're not only they, are they not making a living wage, they're not, they're not making a wage at all. I mean, they're destitute. Yeah, yeah. Like the living wage is essentially supposed is supposedly like the Bernie Sanders folks is supposedly supposed to be like an antidote to to poverty. You know, part yes. of part of their anti poverty <laughs> agenda, but like <laughs> creates it. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. So what do you think of Christians who would say, yeah, but as Christians, we should be more concerned with the plight of those who are on the margins, who are who are poorer, and it, we shouldn't be, like, it's not equal to say that a rich person and a poor person, you know, you're taking a little bit from the rich to just give the, the poor a little tiny bump or whatever, and so there's nothing wrong with those kinds of policies uh, because you know, as a Christian, we should be concerned with the benefits that this applies to the poor. So, if there's a as if there's a segment of the population that bears the benefit of of a policy, it doesn't really matter to them that the the cost is a minimal cost to either you know it's like spread out over everybody or it's only a very small portion of that which belonged to the rich. Yeah, well, I think the the the, the the number one response to that is that, in some sense, uh, justice is not justice. Actually, is not a cost-benefit analytical sort of thing. In other words, we don't determine justice based on um, you know counting up the costs and benefits. And if the benefits outweigh the costs, well, that things that that's a just action. Um, Every economic policy, when the government intervenes, there's going to be costs, and it's going to harm some people. And and if we're if we are in an interventionist state, and then we move to a more free society, yeah, those people that are are are, are you know have been benefiting aren't going to you know the the, the gravy train's going to run out for them, and they're going to they're going to feel themselves har- harmed or put out or what have you. So the question is, okay. What do we do? Or do we just does that mean that we're just stuck in the status quo? And the I'd say the answer is no, because because ethics is not determined on a cost cost benefit analysis. If if ethics, I mean, I, if the ethics against uh, murder and you know the commandments against murder and against theft, if that uh, as I think it does implies um, the social ethics of uh, a free society and private property, then any move towards Towards uh, in, in economic policy towards that is a move towards a more just, more free society, and irregardless of you know who gets who who benefits and who 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 gets harmed. Now, if we move to a freer society, 
and there are uh, you know people that are still that 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 are, that are downtrodden. There are people that are economically disadvantaged for one reason or another. Well, then certainly we we're, we're not we're definitely we do have a calling uh, a call not to uh, turn our turn our heads or turn our faces from these people. We're called called to minister to them. But then the question is, what's the best means? What's the best way to do it? And um, I I think that if if we had a freer the freer the society we had. Um, in general, the more prosperous that society is going to be. So the number of people in abject poverty is going to be much lower. Uh, we won't. We wouldn't be you know, sort of fostering a, a, a culture of dependency in any way. But then the people that 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 that, that the poor that are indeed that would be, indeed be left. Well, then we just minister to them. I mean, I was say. Everyone thinks well, we we have we have to do something. We have to do something. What they mean is when they say you know we society has to do something. They mean other people have to do it. I'm yes. not me, you know. Right. It's not. It's not me. It's it's the one percent. Let's make the one percent do it. Or the, well, let's go. You know. Let's why be narrow. Let's have the five the five percent do it. Right. Like we'll make other people do it. And we'll know the responsibility is on us. If you see somebody, if you see your neighbor in need, help them. That's that's the solution. Yeah. And and uh, you know it it's it's it, it can be done. I think I think it is more probably more challenging in urban areas where. You know, I, I think you have you have, I don't know, a larger critical. I'm I'm not a sociologist, so I don't know this for sure. But you have a larger critical mass, I would assume, of people in in more dire need. I, I don't know if that's true. I mean, on the other hand, you have you have places like Appalachia and other things like that. So I don't know. Uh, it just seems to me that too often um, our number one, so like the number one response is have somebody else do it. We'll call. We'll we'll, we'll have the state take care of it for us. Because I'm not having to pay a whole lot of taxes compared to other people, right. and so that it'll be easier on me. And and yeah. I don't think I don't think the scripture lets us off the hook like that. Yeah, I think David Gronoski calls it hiring ethics, uh, where there's there's a problem with just simply saying, "Well, I want to hire the violence of the state to do something that is, you know, that if I were doing it, uh, I couldn't, I wouldn't be allowed to, uh, <laughs> you know, take the <laughs> take the money of other people." You know, like <laughs> that's right. So like the thou shalt not steal except my majority vote. Yeah. Yeah, that's Oh man, I get in a lot of arguments with progressive and progressive Christians and I'm just like, you know, all you want is other people's money and you're never going to be satisfied satisfied because there's always more of it. Yeah. <laughs> but and what's crazy is like we're actually seeing the elimination of poverty globally and the the only way that we're able to see that is through markets. And yes. in, I, I'm even willing to say that they aren't, well, it doesn't even need to be willing to say something like this, but uh, they're not entirely free markets. Like we're, this isn't like yeah. all those places where, where there's this triumph of progress is yes. they're not like libertarian, you know, utopias, right. You know, wherever where they're not quote unquote free societies, but they are societies that have had stronger property rights and better access to uh, free trade with each other and with other nations. Yes. And all of a sudden, <laughs> Like India and China are not in poverty anymore in my life, in mine, in your lifetime. Yeah. And why can't we just apply that to a lot of other, a lot of other places? So that, that's the, that's the irony that, you know, they, they're anti-poverty at the very thing that would lift people out of poverty. It's like, oh, well, no, that don't, that won't work here. We need other people's money to just hand out to them. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I think I, I often wonder if, if, if as, as a society progresses in, um, you know, in in prosperity, there there comes there there comes a point where 
you know, th- there's enough there's enough people of higher incomes that are experiencing or are able to enjoy a certain amount of wealth in terms of certain types of goods and whatnot. And when it becomes um, widespread enough, we have I think humans have a tendency to quickly move to, to, to see certain things that are we perceive as being good things or nice to have. And in a generation, we quickly move them to rights. Uh-huh. It's not just good to have these things, but we have a right to have these things because in America, everybody has should have a right to X, Y, or Z. Yeah, and I think the the standard reply to that by people like that are on the left is that there is a relative uh, movement of things that are required to sort of just get along, not get along, but get on in life uh, in as societies grow. Like for instance, I I could see it. Like for instance, if if somebody's poor today, they need access to a telephone of some kind, whether it's landline or not. But you yeah. know, I mean, there's there's programs out there that provide cheap cell phones to people who are in poverty. And I would say, I'm not justifying that those those programs, but it's very easy to say or to conclude or easy to argue that having access to a telephone is critical to sort of getting your own job to taking control of your life. And, you know, if we want to do that whole mindset of like, well, we want people to pull themselves out of poverty or, or work to get out of poverty. Well, how can they do that if they have no access to a phone? Like there's all those, like those kind of things. And so I would, I would sort of say, well, I guess to some extent that's true. That doesn't necessarily justify certain policies. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And so, yeah, there are things, I mean, the same, you say the same thing about, you can say the same thing about food, right? I mean, none of us can live without food. Yeah. And, and, and yet we don't have, what, what I find interesting is we don't have a, we don't have like a food czar to make sure that we, that, that we have exactly the right specific food, the right specific good. I mean, we do, we do have, um, you know, uh, welfare programs to aid people with lower incomes so that they have mm-hmm. put enough food. Um, but even then, I mean, I think, th- I think that's, a, a, you know, we, we have to have food and yet, I mean, I still, I would argue we don't need um, a, 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 we certainly don't need a bureaucratic welfare state to make sure that people have, to, that everybody has enough uh, enough that t- t- food that um, you know to sustain themselves. Um, I, I, I there are there's more than one way uh, to to provide for people's needs, and the gov- you know the government's just one and not a very good one at that. Well, and the other thing is, I mean, if it were. To, to use my cell phone analogy, uh, there's the existence of an inexpensive cell phone is has only been made possible through the market, and that's those same kind of forces are po- are the same with food. I mean, food is food can be inexpensive and food can be expensive, and yeah. I'm I'm not guessing that any welfare program uh, that I'm aware of uh, is uh, giving people Whole Foods gift cards. Yeah. Um, and so, although Whole Foods isn't as pricey as it once was. Uh, right. They're they're getting. I, I'm not sure exactly how these programs work. I do know that they're you know means tested things like that. Yeah, the government, so to speak, or is only able to afford to have these programs because food is already inexpensive, and this is like the last bit of people who aren't able to to get there. It's not it's not expensive. If it were an expensive good, there wouldn't be a government program to provide for it. Hey, folks, Norman Horn here from LCI. 
Would you do us a quick favor and rank us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe to us? High rankings helps us get the word out there. And now let's get back to the show. Uh, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I it's um, the and that's that's you know in some sense that that speaks to the to our point that um, you know Mises had this article, a brief article called uh, "Luxuries into Necessities." And in some sense, that's what happens in the marketplace. The first, when 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 some good or new, new good, new consumer item comes out, let's say like the the, the smartphone or whatever, or I remember the DVD player or the CD player. It was originally super expensive, and only you know only the the the, the upper economic echelon was able to afford it. But then over time, as things caught on, economies of scale were able to be reaped and um, uh, the prices of them all came down. Yeah. And so within a generation, it's not looked at anymore as like a luxury. It's like, oh, we got to have it. You know, whether or not we actually have to have it is, is, is another thing, but we got to have it. And, um, you know, sometimes these things like, you know, like, like a phone are, you know, very necessary for, uh, you know, for, for, for getting around and getting gainful employment and that kind of thing. Other times it is a matter of, um, we could actually do without it, but our life would be a whole lot better if we had it. So we're just going to call it a right. (laughs) Oh, yes. Yeah. That came that that, that issue came up. I, I remember talking about the issue of net neutrality. And, you know, people say we, we have to have the government ensuring net neutrality because if we don't, you know, the corporation is going to be able to shut some people off and, you know, some people aren't going to get, you know, they're, they're not, they're going to get, they're going to get um, biased news and, um, you know, uh, they're not going to be able to get the information they need. And I, I remember arguing and saying, look, um, but this, the whole thing, this presupposes you have a right to Internet access. And they say, well, actually, you do. Nobody. How can you? How can you? How can people in today's marketplace, uh, you know, survive economically with, without it? And I, I'm thinking, well, I, I've got, I've got um, two parents uh, in Iowa that survived uh, into their seventies uh, without any internet access, and they have it now. But it is a pure luxury. If it, if the internet went out. Today, they would they their life would not change very much at all, right? So this idea that you know if if somebody who's twenty five feels like they need something, it must be a right. That that is um, that's a that's a that's not a very good um, it's not a very good litmus uh, test. Absolutely. Yeah. So you know, as Christians, we often think about these these subjects from you know we can think of them from a theological perspective the bible doesn't give us an an abundance of economic principles i mean there's some learning from people like you know ludwig von mises and others who who gives us some economic principles and and things like that but there it's not like the bible is absent of economic uh ideas or principles or cultural i uh cultural things that Christians ought to take very seriously. And one of those things is the uh, what you're, you call in one of your essays, uh, fruitful dominion. Um, and so you, 
you start off that article basically saying that like from chapter one in the Bible, Genesis one, uh, we find that we live in a teleological universe that God made all things for a purpose to give man the first commandment to have dominion over the earth. Now I know that when I was, when I got out of college, I started reading some, um, probably left-leaning thinkers in Christian theology, and they were not very happy with this idea that man was supposed to have dominion because what what they saw was an improper use of it, and therefore, you know, we should be very cautious about taking that mandate and just doing whatever we want. Um, so what, I guess the starting point would be, what does it mean to be fruitful and multiply, and how does economics and the free society sort of fit into that? Oh, that's an ah, that's an excellent question. Um, I would want maybe want to take one step back and just ask ourselves, okay, what what is this? What is this mandate? I mean, does does it exist? And um, and so yeah, I I, I begin uh, looking at um, and and the original the the idea is not original with me. There are other writers who have uh, theologians much brighter than myself who've identified this mandate that we find in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, the demanding to be fruitful, multiply, to have dominion, it's what it says, to rule over the earth, to fill the earth uh, with people, and um, to work it and keep it, right? And so um, there's a sort of a dual mandate to work, to uh, cultivate, to um uh, to, to, in some sense, exercise uh, uh, our faculties as image bearers to to creatively draw forth the potentialities that God has put in creation. I mean, that's what he wants us to do. At the same time, right, we're to work and keep it. We're not to spoil it. We're not to destroy it. Um, we are to, we're to make use of it. The, the word dominion means dominion for use, right? So it's not just to, like to be an overseer. It's not just to be, so like uh, a, a like a museum curator, like you know the, the the creation is here and we're supposed to just watch it and uh, you know follow the admonition of MC Hammer and don't touch this, <laughs> right? But we we're called to actually make use of it, but we're supposed to we're, we're called to make use of it in a way that doesn't that doesn't spoil it or destroy it or waste it. Um, and so the question is, how do we do that? How do we how do we exercise dominion? Uh, and now it, it's even trickier because the original dominion was give, is not the, the, the dominion mandate is not a product of the fall. I mean, sometimes you get these people who will say, "Well, okay, but sure, we've we've got to, we've got to work, we've got to do things, but but that's but that's only because of sin. That's because of the curse." And no, the the, the cultural mandate was given to man before the fall. And I would argue that after the fall, the dominion, the dominion mandate is even more important because now we live in a in a fallen world uh, where you know, the, where the ground is cursed, and instead of bringing forth fruits and vegetables naturally, it brings forth thorns and thistles. And so, if we're going to eat bread, we have to eat bread by the sweat of our brow. And so we have to work even more. So the question is, how do we exercise dominion in a world of aggravated scarcity without either starving to death or killing one another in the process? You know, how do we escape some sort of uh, social Darwinian barbaric struggle for survival? You know, kill or be killed, um, eat or be eaten. And economics is very important in this because economics shows us that it's by – 
people engaging in society, in the social division of labor, where people are able to specialize at doing what they're the best at doing, being productive in that area, whatever it is, and then trading their surplus, their excess, with other people who have excess in other goods, and in so doing, everybody in society is relatively more productive, and hence everybody in society can actually – they have access to more goods to satisfy more ends. And so the social division of – the way we overcome this problem is by engaging in society, um, which, which by the way – sort of uh, shows that it's simply not true that, uh, that, that a free market is some sort of um, – you know, the, the free market is, is a world of isolated atoms where every – individuals that only care about themselves and only do what only benefits themselves. That, that's simply not true. A, a, a free society is a world where we have a social division of labor where everybody depends upon everybody else for the satisfaction of their ends. And so there is a – there's a common – you know, even when we have differences in ultimate ends and differences in values, there is a commonality of people in society – uh, a, a common, uh, a, a common, what should one say? A common uh, value is the uh, the continuation of the division of labor. Because as the division of labor continues, that that allows all of us to have more access, even the, especially the least productive of us, access to more goods that we would than we would have than we would have without the division of labor and then of course economics also tells us about capital formation and its contribution to economic flour- human flourishing and technological improvement and 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 then economics also reminds us good economics reminds us that all of this activity needs to be coordinated somehow for it for for it all to work together for there not to be massive surpluses and shortages and the way for that to, to happen is for there to be entrepreneurs who have access to market prices to engage in calculating profit and loss so that when entrepreneurs produce things that that, that, that people really d- demand uh, at a high level, they earn a profit. And if they end up producing something that, that, that people really don't want, they earn losses uh, for essentially wasting resources. And so if we have a, a free society that, that, that allows entrepreneurs to reap profits when they invest wisely or incur losses when they, when they uh, produce things that, that people ultimately don't want, that provides the, uh, the, the, the discipline, shall we say, and rewards those entrepreneurs for doing exactly what society wants them to do, which is provide the goods that they want at the least possible at, at the lowest possible prices. And and th- that's as we do that, that allows us to uh, sa- you know uh, sustain a growing population that is that 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 in which all of the individual people persons are uh, you know fulfilling their callings as they've been gifted and talented by God. So I think understanding economics is really really important for us to understand how a how a free and, and, and a free society can exercise dominion in relative peace. Something that has been sort of recently pointed out to me has been that the, and you mentioned it here a little bit, is that the cultural mandate was to be fruitful and multiply was pre-fall. 
in in the scripture. And if we were told, if Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth, and that there was some sort of labor involved, uh, then they're basically doing work under the conditions of flourishing and prosperity to begin with. Yes. As opposed to like, well, we need to work because we need to at least survive. And, you know, if we're lucky, we'll do more than just survive. We'll get along, yeah. well, you know, we'll get along well, et cetera. And, yeah. um, you know, you're also working on, so that that's just a point that um, I hadn't really thought of, is that the Garden of Eden is a vision for what life ought to be like without sin. And it includes prosperity. It includes flourishing uh, as as we do work. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and you're working on you're working on a book that is uh, probably at least a year out from kind of where we're when we're talking now, um, based on what you told me earlier, uh, on the economics of prosperity. What what is this project about? Well, it, it's 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 a development of some of the themes that were in this uh, this uh, this article, "Fruitful Dominion," that that you were uh, referring to. I'm, I'm basically wanting to take the economic principles in that article and and develop them more fully uh, from a from an Austrian perspective. I teach uh, a class, economic expansion development at Grove City, and there's not a single volume, uh, a single book that. Uh, sort of what I would say lays out uh, a theory of economic expansion development to my satisfaction. Uh, there's an, a lot of a lot of great economic general great economic treatises that you can draw from, uh, you know, passages by passage or chapter by chapter. But there's not been, as far as I know, a book that's, that sort of brings it all together and and shows the different. Uh, what I call sources of prosperity, uh, things that I mentioned, the, the division of labor, capital accumulation, technological improvement, and uh, entrepreneurship, which is key that almost every, every, certainly every, I think almost every mainstream uh, account of development sort of leaves out. Um, to bring them all together to show that Yes, these these sources of prosperity are important, but also important, and this is something that's not widely recognized, for them to function well for the division of labor and capital accumulation technology and entrepreneurial activity, for them all to be, uh, what should one say, for them all to contribute to actual economic prosperity, they have to work together. Right? In other words, if, if we decided as a bureaucrat, say, hey, you know, the secret is, say, capital. If you look, I mean, we have to have capital and capital goods to be productive. So let's just let's just pour government money. Let's have a, a five-year industrial plan. We're going to pour resources into uh, the building up of the capital structure, the capital stock, and we'll be better off. Well, that that presumes a whole lot of a whole lot of things. It presumes that we know. Uh, which capital goods will be uh, best suited to meet the, the the needs of the people in society? It presumes that we know uh, the best technologies to use in which we can use, you know, to the best combinations of goods uh, that we can uh, make to you know we can use to get the best outcome to the, get the maximum output. Um, it produces uh, it presumes that the, the government bureaucrat knows all of this, and, and that he's going to act uh, accordingly. And in reality, of course, bureaucrats don't know these things. They certainly don't know. They don't. They don't have any special insight on what uh, consumers want. 
Uh, maybe yeah, they you know that they need cl- food, clothing, and shelter. But what kind of food? What kind of clothing? What kind of shelter? What factors are best to make food and to make clothing and to make shelter? Uh, they don't necessarily know all of these things, and so the way for all these sources of prosperity to come together is for entrepreneurs to make these decentralized decisions. Uh, using market prices to calculate profit and loss. And market prices are absolutely crucial because if an entrepreneur uh, invests a certain amount of money to make T-shirts and he's able to sell them at a, at a price that yields a profit, those prices, the prices of the shirts themselves and the prices of the, the, the fabric, the sewing machine, the labor, etc., all of those prices are ultimately determined by the subjective preferences of people in society. So when an entrepreneur makes a shirt and sells it at a profit, and he, he knows he's making a profit because he compares the price of the shirt to the sum of the prices of the factors that, use it to, that he uses to produce a shirt. Because those prices are all determined by people's subjective preferences, we know that when he makes a profit, he makes a profit by – productively serving society by adding value to society and, and but we don't have free, we don't have market prices that communicates that unless we live in a world of voluntary exchange which means we have to have um, we have, we have to have private property we have to we have to be in a society where people are not forced to buy from anybody and people are not kept from buying from anybody Right. And and that and that's a world of private property. So so what I'm wanting to do in this book is basically uh, explain all of that in, in more detail and show you know how the different sources of prosperity contribute to to economic progress, to show how these different engines have to work together, um, and then show that in order for these engines to work together, we have to have the social institution of private property, uh, sound money, and that implies certain policies that, that basically uh, a policy of the free market, you know, a policy without, uh, you know, no price controls, um, no uh, interventionist regulations, um, you know, no uh, uh, confiscatory taxation, things like that. Yeah, basically barriers to trade. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, Sean, anytime I read something that you've written or listen to a talk that you've you've done, I, I always learn something, and so obviously I'm going to encourage our listeners to go and, and find more uh, of you. Um, we're, we're out of time on this episode, but there is one other place, that, there is at least one other place that they can go, and that is um, they can do a search for Austrian economics as common grace, What's the like soundbite version of like what do you argue for there? That's an interesting title. That by the way. Thank you. The thesis of that paper is that uh, sound economics, and from my perspective, it's it's Misesian praxeological economics. That economics, because it is true and and is compatible with the Christian view of man, that body of thought, even though not developed predominantly by Christians is something that God graciously allows us to to, to 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 know and to discover. And so it's common it's it's common grace in that sense. It's not it's common as opposed to saving grace. It's not as far as we know, Mises, Rothbard, Karl Menger, Bombavik, 
uh, we're not Christians, and we're not redeemed, we're not justified and sanctified. And yet, God in his grace allowed them to discover things that are tremendously helpful in terms of us learning about the economic aspect of, of creation. And so, um, that's something that's available, it's common to all men, and so that's why um, I think theologians would classify that as common grace. And, and, I, and I argue because it's true – I think these principles are true. They, they are indeed common grace. In other words, it's not just it's not just they're fundamental facts of life. It's not just political sloganeering. You know, it's not I don't I don't believe it's true because I want to abolish welfare. It's not driven by political bias. It's driven by uh, a bias for the truth. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, yeah, I just I just loved our conversation. There's always so much to learn. So thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.